We are going to continue our series on spiritual maturity. I hope you're enjoying the series, and it's a series that I believe is very practical, something that every one of us can grow in. And today, I want to invite you to go with me to my text in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be reading two verses from there, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Last week, I told you what spiritual maturity is not. This week, we're going to talk about what spiritual maturity actually looked like. So if you have your Bibles, you go to Colossians chapter 1, Let me read for you verse 28 and 29. He is the one, referring to Jesus Christ, Paul wrote, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Lord, I pray that you will come and speak to us. May you challenge us of what it means to, be, to grow in Christ-likeness so that every one of us, wherever you have planted us, in the church, in, the, in our homes, in the marketplaces of this world, that every one of us will increasingly grow in Christ-likeness. We commit this time of sharing to you now in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. These verses that we just read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29 articulates what the Apostle Paul is contending for, he said, with all of his energy, with everything that he has, he strenuously contends towards this. And in this verse, he definitively declares that his ministry goal is not just to proclaim Christ, but to present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's his ministry goal, to to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now, what does this word mature mean? The word mature in the Greek is the word theleos, which actually means complete or full-grown or perfect, if you like. Uh, It implies um, ripeness in character and experience. Someone who is ripe in their character someone who is fully developed in their, in, 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 their, in their experience. That's what the word teleos actually means. It's used to describe the full development of mature adulthood as contrasted against the immaturity of childhood. So it's, it's like the opposite of being a child, of being childish. That's the word mature. Okay? And what, when it is used in a biblical context, it means mature and complete in Christ. Now, the reality is, humanly speaking, only Jesus can be complete and perfect. How many of you agree? Only Jesus is complete and perfect. He alone completely fulfills the Father's will. He alone is totally obedient. None of us are, honestly, right? But this side of heaven, I think we cannot and we will not progress beyond what is found in Christ because He is the perfect one. He's the standard. Therefore, spiritual maturity is simply Christ-likeness. The more you are like Jesus, the more mature you become. We are as mature as we can be like Christ and no more. Christ alone is the only fully mature man. His character complete and his nature is balanced. He alone has the nature that is fully like the Father, no one else. He is 
the standard. He alone has all the fruit of the Spirit. He alone has all the gifts of the Spirit. He is the ultimate standard that God has set for us. Now, the question we ask ourselves is this, is it at all possible to reach that point of complete Christ-likeness? Is it at all possible for you and I to reach that point of complete Christ-likeness? Now, biblically speaking, listen carefully so you don't misunderstand me, okay? Biblically speaking, I believe it is possible because God has given us all that we need to be like Christ. But this is a moment-by-moment experience. You understand? It's a moment-by-moment experience. There is not a destination that we have arrived and we can stay there. But it is a moment-by-moment experience. As you continually surrender, as you, every moment you're surrendering, yes, it is possible. But the Bible, as long as the devil is still around, as long as sin still abound, it is going to be a moment-by-moment experience. But the Bible promises us that the day will come when sin and Satan will be completely eradicated. How many of you amen that? The day will come when sin is completely gone. The day will come when Satan is completely removed. And then we will become like Christ when we see him face to face. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's talking about the day when we will stand before, before God and we will see Him face to face and in a moment, we'll be transformed into His likeness. In the meantime, on this earth, is it possible to be, to be like Christ, you know, is it possible to have that complete the Christ-likeness? It is possible, but it's a moment-by-moment experience. Just because today you are, you, are, you, you, you are doing well doesn't mean tomorrow you cannot fall. Does that make sense? Because sin is still around. Because Satan still abounds. You see, and because of that, it's a moment-by-moment experience. But the good news is the day will come when we will see him face-to-face. And then we will become like him. But here's the thing. The Apostle Paul tells us this. How do we know that we are growing in maturity? It's by measuring ourselves against the standard. Who is the standard? Christ. You see, the standard is not what the church defines. It is not what society or culture tells us. It is not even what your leader is like. That's not our goal. There is only one measurement, and that's the fullness of Christ, or Christ likeness. That's the measurement we are shooting for. Now, what then does spiritual maturity look like? Okay, there must be a way in which we can form a picture. What does spiritual maturity then look like? There are so many ways to answer this critical question. What does spiritual maturity look like? But what I'd like to do this morning is to focus on one pertinent verse that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 that I think crystallizes for us three critical aspects of spiritual maturity, okay? So let me go, invite you now to go with me to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where I think the Apostle Paul really encapsulates for us what spiritual maturity looks like in one simple verse. And here's what it says. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. 
The goal of this command, Paul said, is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, the context of this verse is that Paul was reminding Timothy that his assignment in Ephesus, because Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to look after the church, and his assignment was to challenge the false teachers of the law not to mislead the people of God anymore, but to go back to the fundamentals of our faith. See, and he, he, was, he was asking, reminding Timothy, this is your job. Stop these false teachers from leading the people astray. Bring them back to the fundamentals. Now, what are the fundamentals of the faith? Paul then goes on to tell us the goal of his apostolic instruction the goal of his command is this, love which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, this tells us that this is Paul's decisive aim in his teaching, in his apostolic development of the church. This is, this is his decisive aim. This is the core purpose of his ministry. Or if, I, if I can put it this way, this is the end game of his disciple-making. And I think this is what spiritual maturity can look like. We are developing disciples who exhibit love from a pure heart, who walk with a good conscience and possess a sincere faith. Are you with me? Because that's the goal that he's shooting towards, that we will develop disciples who exhibit love from a pure heart, have lived with a, a good conscience and has a sincere faith. So I'm going to unpack each one of them uh, for you. Number one, here are the three marks of spiritual maturity. Number one is a pure love. A pure love from a heart that is untainted. Jesus said in John 13, verse 34 and 35, listen to what Jesus said here. A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus made it clear that love is the hallmark of spiritual maturity. He said, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. It's a, such a definitive statement. Uh, no wonder Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, remember, Paul said that love does, uh, he said, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of this is what? Love. The greatest of this is love. Love is a definitive measurement. Romans chapter 13, verse 10, Paul says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Wow. Imagine all the laws of the Old Testament are summed up in this one new commandment, which is love one another. But this love, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus is talking about here is not a man-centered, you know, self-absorbed, you know, love that people tend to gravitate to. It's not the kind of love we're talking about. But because man tends to reduce love to this, you know, we tend to reduce love to a feel good, I okay, you okay, it's all good, you can do no wrong, all-inclusive, spineless kind of indulgent love. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, that can, that, this kind of love, self-indulgent and all that, can become a counterfeit love, which is actually a mark of spiritual immaturity. 
And that's why Paul makes a critical distinction here in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he talks about love. He says, it is love out of a pure heart. It's not love that is tainted with being self-absorbed, you know, I just want to be inclusive, you okay, I okay. No, no, no. It is a love out of a pure heart. True love is one out of a purity of heart. It is not blind to wrongdoing. It is not, you know, blind to sinful immorality. No. We cannot say just because I want to love you, therefore anything goes. No. It is, rec- it is love out of a pure heart. This kind of love is not afraid to call out what is wrong and correct one another in love according to the standards of the Bible. Are you with me? That's the kind of love we are talking about, a pure love. Ephesians 4.15, Paul tells us, instead, speaking the truth in love. That's so important. Speaking the truth in love, we will then grow to become Mature, and they go to be in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. It is when we are willing to speak the truth in love to one another, that's when we all can grow towards spiritual maturity. Hey, spiritual maturity. Are you listening? Yes. Yeah, you got that. You with me? Yes. See, it, it is not indulgent, it's not afraid to call out and to correct and to confront. Now, you may ask, what does it mean to speak the truth in love? I think it is the willingness to take the risk of being rejected, of being misunderstood, of becoming unpopular, of being offensive, rather than to tolerate what is wrong. See, one of the things that thrills me is when members like you feel free to come up to me after a sermon, and then you clarify things. Then... I have said that something that I said that may be misleading, something that I said may be incomplete or unclear or even out of context or something like that, it chills me when members are free to actually walk up to me and say, Pastor, I'm not very clear about this. Can you explain that? Because that's the right thing to do. I'm very happy when the ushers, you know, we got ushers here who can stop me from entering the auditorium because I got a holy grounds cup in my hand. They said, stop. (laughs) <laughs> cannot. I think that's good. That's doing the right thing. That takes courage, but I appreciate that. I love it when our preaching team, do you know every week we actually prepare our sermons together? Uh, we don't actually prepare sermons by ourselves. You know, I prepare. If I'm the one preaching, I prepare. I bring it to the preaching team. They look at my script and they can actually tear it apart. They can tell me this part not so good. I think you're going too long. I think this is boring. You know, say something like that. And they correct me. See, and every week, what you hear from here has been edited, <laughs> has been clarified. And, and I'm so happy, you know, when they're able to feel free to actually tell me, correct each other's sermon, including mine, so that we all can become better. Are you with me? And in moments like this, we need what? We need purity of heart, and we, reach, we, we need humility of soul on both sides. Because the truth is this, those who correct must do so out of a pure heart that wants nothing but the best for the other party. Are you with me? I'm correcting you not out of anger. I'm correcting you because I really love you and I want the best for you. So out of love, I'm telling you the truth. And in that way, we learn. Okay, it, it is never with the attitude of a prideful, I know better than you, therefore I tell you. It's never like that. See, on the other hand, 
the one who is receiving the correction must have the humility of soul to actually learn from it. And this is how we learn to speak the truth in love to one another. This is how we give grace and this is how we receive grace through one another. And in this way, then we have each other's back. In this way, we really have to spur one another on towards maturity. Are you with me? And my prayer is that every connect group will become like that. In every connect group, we have that freedom. We have that, we have that um, liberty to actually correct one another in love. We have the freedom to speak the truth in love to one another. And then everybody will grow towards maturity. Okay, then we are developing the kind of love that comes from a pure heart. We are learning to love one another even as I have loved you, said the Lord Jesus. Love one another even as I have loved you. Read John 13, verse 34 and 35 again. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. We love one another with the love of Christ. The same way Christ loved us, we love one another. Then by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How many of you agree? The, one, the first distinctive mark of spiritual maturity is a pure love. A, pure, a love that comes out of a pure heart. Here's number two. A good conscience. It's so important. A good conscience. First Timothy 1.5 The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word conscience comes from a Greek word which actually literally means to know with. Conscience, it means to know with. It is through the conscience that we know what is right and what is wrong. The conscience tells us. Conscience was meant to be the compass of the soul, to tell us what is right and what is wrong. But unfortunately, due to sin, the conscience of man can be compromised. How many of you know that? Our conscience can be compromised. Our conscience can be, using the words of the Bible, seared or hardened or desensitized or defiled. Take a look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2 now. Listen to this. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things that are taught by demons. Such teaching came through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. Their conscience has been hardened. It has been seared with like having hot iron that goes over it until the conscience is hardened. Now, how many of you, uh, you know, I, when I was growing up and drinking coffee, uh, when in Asia, you drink coffee at piping hot temperature. Only when I get here, I get introduced to holy grounds and I realize it's meant to be drunk lukewarm or something like that, a particular degree. But I was, during my time, we drink it piping hot, okay? And because of that, I've reached the point, you drink, keep drinking hot coffee over, over the years, you know what will happen? After a while, it don't feel hot anymore. Right? Why? Because your lips are seared. There is, you, you get accustomed to it so that you don't feel the heat. But if you give hot coffee to a little child with tender lips, they feel it and they react. Why? Because our lips can be seared. Okay, due to 
just conditioning. You keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. After a while, you don't feel that it's hot anymore. It's the same with playing the guitar. You know how do you know that you've got a good guitarist? Look at the fingers. Every seasoned guitarist, their fingers have calluses at the tip. That's why they can go up and down the, you know, the, the, the guitar and feel nothing. But if you just a newbie, you just go a bit, I have pain, I have pain. Uh, then you know you're, you're a newbie. But you're a seasoned guitarist, you feel nothing. Why? Because calluses, it's hardened already. Are you getting this? Exactly what happened to our conscience. The first time you do something wrong, you feel the prick of the conscience, very sharp. You just knew it, oh, yeah, that's not right. But if you ignore that pricking, and you persist on doing the same thing again and again and again, after a while, you don't feel the pangs of your conscience anymore, and you can just go on in your sin. Why? Because your conscience has been seared, it's been hardened, it's been silenced. The conscience is now defiled, it becomes dysfunctional. Titus chapter 1, verse 15, Paul wrote this, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their conscience are corrupted. That's why they can do the wrong thing and don't feel a thing. Because the conscience has been defiled. The conscience has been seared. A spiritually mature believer will subject his conscience to the scrutiny of the Word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? This is so important. The, Holy, the Word of God defines for us what is right and wrong, and the Holy Spirit convicts our heart, our conscience, when we disobey and we stray from the Word of God. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained ourselves to distinguish good from evil. The writer of Hebrews was challenging the church here in Hebrews 5, not to hold on to Judaism, but to go on, hold on to their faith in Christ. And he's telling them this, that by this time, by right, you ought to be mature, but you are not. And the reason is because they are still feeding on the milk of God's word. They're still feeding on the milk. If they want to grow up and go on to maturity, we need to move on to feed on the meat of God's Word. And I'm not talking here about just knowing the Word of God academically. It is about obeying the Word of God actively, allowing the Word of God to become our compass that tell us what is right and wrong, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us when we stray from it. And when you put these two together, it's going to put us on a path to spiritual maturity. And... We are not talking here about just knowing the word, but it's about obeying the word. It's deceptive to think that the mere appreciation, accumulation, and exposition of God's word will lead to spiritual maturity. No, I think what is needed is the application of God's word. Are you with me, people? It's the application. It's the obedience of God's word. And that is why just to have a strong pulpit does not necessarily produce a disciple-making church. Just because we've got great preachers doesn't make us a disciple-making church. Now, of course, I'm a strong advocate of expository preaching. Over my 18 years of leading this church, I've been an advocate of preaching the Word for what it is, and you all know that. I'm a fan of biblical literacy, but I'm under no illusion to think that the mere knowledge of God's Word will necessarily change life. No, 
It is the believing and obeying the Word of God that changes life. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. It's the constant application and obedience of God's Word in your life and in mine that will train us to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13. But the Word of God is alive and active. This book is amazing. This word here is alive, it is active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is the word of God, my brothers and sisters, that judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart, exposes the deepest intention of the heart. This book has become the true north of our conscience. And our conscience take reference from this. A clear conscience. Not just a clear conscience, but a good conscience. Notice what the Apostle Paul wrote here, right? He said his end goal is for us to have a good conscience. It's not just a clear conscience. Now you may ask what's the difference between the two. I'll tell you what the difference is. A clear conscience comes when we know that we have done nothing wrong. Am I correct? If I haven't done anything wrong, I have a clear conscience. Or I may have done something wrong, but I've repented before God. I've stopped doing it. Now my conscience is clear. That's a clear conscience. But I think what we are after is not just a clear conscience, but to have a good conscience. What's the difference is this. It's not when you have you may have done nothing wrong or you have repented from it and you stopped already, you have a clear conscience. But to have a good conscience is when we don't just don't do what is wrong, but we also do what is right. Are you see, seeing the difference? It's not just avoiding anything that's wrong, but it is actually proactively doing what is right. That's what gives us a good conscience. The decisive choice of rejecting what is wrong and choosing what is right is a distinctive mark of spiritual maturity. So it's not just about sins of commission that I didn't do, it's the sins of omission that I also don't do. James 4 verse 17, James put it this way, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Get it? It's not just I have a clear conscience I didn't do anything wrong. But if I know that that's the right thing to do and I didn't do it, that is wrong. <laughs> See? And how would you know what the good that we ought to do should be? Back to this. The Word of God is our steady compass for life. So if I take reference from the Word of God and I give deference to the Word of God, then I think I can grow on to maturity. I don't just want to have a clear conscience, but let's develop a good conscience. Just because it didn't hurt anybody doesn't absolve us from the need to help the poor and needy because that's the right thing to do. Are you with me? It's not just I didn't, I didn't deprive anybody or anything, but I, if I know that that is what God convicted me to do and I didn't do it, that in itself... It's stopping me from having a good conscience. And Paul's aim in disciple-making is to grow disciples who walk with a good conscience before God and men. 
So that's another distinctive mark of spiritual maturity. It's love from a pure heart. It is having a good, walking with a good conscience before God. And here, I leave you one last thing. It's a sincere faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and now a sincere faith. This word sincere in the Greek is aniprokritos, which actually means without hypocrisy or with no pretense. In other words, a spiritually mature Christian is one who has a faith that is authentic and real. Now, what is faith? I think faith is simply trust. The more faith you have in a person, then the more you trust that person. Right? And we trust the person for who he is, and we trust the person for what he or she says. And because you trust in that person, then you trust that whatever happens, he or she has a good reason to allow it to happen. Okay, because I trust you. That's why I know that whatever it is that you've done, there's a good reason for it. And the good news is, all of us are called to put our trust, not just in anybody, but we are asked to put our trust in one who is all perfect, all able, all knowing, and all wise. And that is why true faith can stay resilient, whether through good times or bad. And this is what makes our faith robust. You know, I, when I was growing up, there was an organization called Campus, um, Campus Crusade that was very, very active in reaching out to young people. So when I was in school, I, they liked to use this illustration, which I, I, we got in, imprinted into my, into my mind. And the illustration goes like this. It tells a story of three men walking along a very narrow wall. Okay? And the three men, was, one was, his name is Feeling, the second is faith. The third is fact. Okay, so we have feeling, faith and, uh, faith, and fact. And so what happened was, as they were walking along the narrow road, it was feelings that was leading the way. So they were holding hands and walking along this narrow wall. And then feeling stumbled and fell, like all feelings do, right? Sometimes up, sometimes down. So feeling stumbled and fall. And when feeling fell, he pulled faith along with him. But thank God, uh, fact cannot be moved. And another way to put it is like truth, you know, <laughs> cannot be moved. And so what truth did was he pulled faith up and then faith as a result could pull feeling up and then they carry on happily ever after. <laughs> you get the idea, right? But I think there's a better way to do it. Don't let feeling lead the way la, because every now and then he falls. Why not turn it the other way around and let fact lead the way? Because the truth of God's word never change. Are you with me? So we don't live by feelings, we live by the truth of God's word. See, and if the truth is leading the way, then faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of God, hearing the truth, and then feeling as a result will be tilted by faith. See, and then we can really walk happily ever after. Get the point. And what he's trying to say here is this, faith that is rooted in the promises of God's word is unwavering. It is solid. Because faith will always follow the word and our feelings will then be tilted by the level of faith that is in our hearts. 
If we let feelings lead the way, it can be up and down. And when we, when we feel down, it can drag our faith down as well. But the Word of God never changes. And faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. And that is why the prophet Habakkuk could declare in Habakkuk 3, so victoriously, you know, in verse 17 and 18. I love this verse. It goes like this. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I'll be joyful in God my Saviour. Faith is anchored in the unseen realm. It operates from the invisible to the visible. Faith actualizes what it realizes. You see, faith is that which enables the heart to see. It enables us to live in the will of God. And faith is... But faith, however, is not denying facts. Huh? Uh, faith doesn't mean that I don't... I, I, I just ignore the facts around me. No, no. Abraham, remember, in, in Romans 4, verse 18 to 21. Listen to what it says here. Abraham faced the fact no, he's facing facts. He faced the fact that his body is as good as dead. No, he, faced, he knows and he understands that my, I'm an old man already. He understands fully that Sarah's womb is already dead. Those are the facts. He can't change that. He knows that. But he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. See, and he trusted in the promises of God. He was fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he has promised. And this is what faith really is. True faith, my friends, is not based on faith. It is really based on who God is, based on what God says. And faith actually feeds on the promises of God. See, and it's based on that. So my challenge to all of us here, if we want to go on to spiritual maturity, let us walk by faith according to the unchanging word of God rather than by our feelings because feelings can go up and down. And then what do you have? You have sincere faith and it will put you on the road to maturity. So let me end by saying this. These are the three distinctive marks of spiritual maturity. May all of us develop a pure love, love that comes out of an untainted heart, a pure heart. Two, may we develop a good conscience I don't just avoid doing what is wrong, but I seek to do what the Word of God says. Okay, number three, develop a sincere faith, a faith that is so robust. It's not based on my feelings. It is based on what God says and who God is. Let me end off with this story and then we will pray together. Now, in 1904, there's a man called William Bordham who graduated from high school. This is a true story. As an heir to his family fortune, he was destined you know, to become a wealthy man, set up for life. But at the age of 16, after he finished his studies, the family gave him a trip around the world. So he took that ticket and he went around the world. He travelled through Asia, Middle East and Europe. And it was on this trip that God laid a burden on his heart for the lost, the last and the least. And he came home after that trip with a clear call you know, to become a missionary. And that is when he took out his Bible and he wrote at the back of his Bible two words, no reserve. He will hold nothing back from God. He said no reserves. Went on to Yale University to study in 1905. 
And that's when he started a prayer meeting in Yale University in, in, in the States. Uh, he started a prayer meeting with one of his friends on campus. That small little prayer group started to grow and grow and it spread across the campus and it soon became a movement. When he first started, after his first year in Yale, there were 150 freshmen that would be meeting weekly to pray and to read the word with him. But by the time he finished, four years later, that prayer meeting has grown to 1,300 students every week. It became a powerful movement. And he went beyond Yale campus and he founded a mission called Yale Hope Mission to care for the widows, the orphans, and the disabled on the city streets. And after graduation, Bowden actually turned down high-paying jobs to obey God's call to be a missionary and he wanted to go to China. And that was when, after he turned down all this job and he set his heart on becoming a missionary, he actually wrote two more words at the back of his Bible. No reserves. Now he said, no retreat, no turning back. Then he went on to Princeton Seminary in New Jersey to prepare to, prepare to answer his call. When he finished his studies at Princeton and he got his, his uh, training as a, as a pastor, he sailed for China. But because he was hoping to reach the Muslims in China, he decided to stop by the Middle East in Egypt, actually to study Arabic so that he could reach out to the, to the people, in, the Muslims in China. But when he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within one month, William Bowden died at the age of just 25. He never made it even to China. Now, I don't claim to understand why God would allow Bowden to go through all that he went through and never yet, never made it to the mission field. Seems like an untimely death, seems like a waste, but I think not in God's economy. Because after his death, they discovered that Bowden has written two other words at the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserve, no regrets, uh, no retreat, he wrote these last words, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. And I think he's lived his life that way. I thought about him when I thought about who can I think of that actually would personify this, you know? Other than our Lord Jesus, I thought, yeah, here's a man who actually lived with this pure love, with a good conscience, and actually a sincere faith, a faith that never wavered all the way from the start to the end. I think he was a picture of a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, my friends, our discipleship is not determined by how much we have achieved for God or for man, but it's about how much we have obeyed the will of God. And William Bowden, I think, did that. Love from a pure heart, walk with a good conscience and live out a sincere faith. In short, he was just like Jesus. And my prayer is for all of us, myself included. I'm still not there. I'm taking this journey. God help me so that I can love people with a pure heart. Develop this kind of sincere faith that's robust, whether on top or below, whether in the mountain or in the valley, we remain consistent. And may God help us develop a good conscience, not just avoiding what is wrong, but pursuing what is right. Amen.
Why don't we stand together, shall we? We allow the Lord to speak to us. Thank you, Lord. Father God, this morning, we come before you to declare that we are not there yet. But God, as a congregation, as a people, we sincerely want to come on this road towards spiritual maturity. May you help each and every one of us to love out of a pure heart, to walk with a good conscience, and to develop a sincere faith, so that through it all, we become more and more like Jesus. So Lord, come and do this work in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, wherever we are, I believe that this is uh, something that every one of us need to say that we are still on this journey. None of us are there yet, but every one of us are seeking to do this, to really put ourselves on this path towards spiritual maturity. Let's pray into it. Let's allow our daily life to press into these three things. God, purify our hearts so that we may love out of a pure heart. God, help us walk with a good conscience, pursuing the good, avoiding the evil. And may God give us a robust faith, faith that will be consistent in good times and bad. And I think this is a wonderful thing to pray into, and every one of us need that. So I'm going to give you two minutes just to turn to your wife, your husband, turn to your friend next to you. Would you just hold each other and let's just pray and make this our desire. Let's pray into these three things that God will help us really lift out these three things. Ask God purify our hearts, yeah? So that we can love out of a pure heart. Would you ask the Lord to help you develop a good conscience and a sincere faith? So why don't we take a few moments, let's just pray with each other before we close today. Father, may you send us away this morning with a fresh resolve to put ourselves on the pathway to spiritual maturity. May you help each one of us to develop this pure love, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we know we do this not in our own strength, but only by depending on you. So God, come and do this deep work in each one of us. And we receive that work in Jesus' name. Now, may the love of the Father, the peace of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit go with us. Amen and amen. Amen. Hallelujah.